This is the Maker Stories podcast, where we talk to inspirational craftswomen from black and ethnic minority backgrounds. I'm Dr. Karen Patel, a research fellow in the Birmingham Centre for Media and Cultural Research at Birmingham City University. For the past few years, I've been working with Crafts Council UK, researching diversity in craft in projects funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. We hope to raise awareness of some of the barriers and challenges facing women makers of colour as they try to establish a craft career. For more information and to listen to the other episodes in this series, visit the website craftexpertise.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at craftexpertise.com or one word. For this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Rose Sinclair. Rose is a design lecturer in textiles in the design department at Goldsmiths, University of London, where she teaches textiles and design-related practice at postgraduate level. Her doctoral research focuses on black British women and their crafting practices, and textiles as used for migration, identity and settlement, and she's also interested in their use of textiles networks as participatory craft practice. This is a slightly different maker story because I'm really interested in Rose's work and I think she has some really interesting insights into the histories of craft and how certain types of craft, particularly crafts by black women, are perceived and valued. So Rose, thank you for joining us. Can you tell us a bit more about your interest in craft and and where that interest comes from? Okay, my interest in crafts mainly comes down to the fact that as a design lecturer, when I opened a textile book or a design book, I didn't see me. And if you're presenting heritage and craft and design and you're presenting to an international set of students, you want to be able to talk to them about heritage and practice. And this increasing notion of colonisation, decolonisation in design that's that's emerged in the last five years or so, it became increasingly um, obvious in my own research and in my own thinking that I needed to look at, so why don't I see the aesthetics and the crafts of my mother and my grandmother and my aunts and those that those women that had migrated here in the late 40s, early 50s, because I think that they had actually contributed to an aesthetic, because we talk about black women contributing to fashion and styling, and this contribution of the black um, body being exoticised in kind of magazines, etc. But in terms of craft practices, and when you think about modern writing on craft practices, we're almost absent from the dialogue. But for me, making and crafting was not unusual. Three, four years old, all the women around me are black and they're all making. So for me, coming from that kind of background, I didn't think it was unusual. But obviously, in today's crafting market, you can go to any WH Smiths, any local shop, any um, store, but every single craft magazine on the market, in the marketplace, you will not see a person of colour on the front page let alone on the inside pages talking about their craft and their crafting practices. And even when you look in the bigger kind of artistic craft books, very, very rarely are we represented. Um, But for me, my first encounter with craft 
was when I was three or four years old and my mum sewing on a Singer treadle sewing machine. But it was one of those that she had converted to electricity. So when we had money, it was all fire, all, all guns firing and you, she could sew, sew, sew. When we didn't have money, it was this foot action on the, on the treadle so she could still sew. But I used to just play with the treadle because obviously when you're three or four years old, you can't sit on a chair and do the whole action. So I just used to love watching the the treadle go up and down, but know that there was something happening at the top. Yeah, so so you you were familiar with craft from a a really young age. Yeah. And and as you said, you grew up with with black women doing crafts. Yeah, and they made that in there because my mum was a a big kind of churchgoer and very... Very much into my mum came from a church background, and when she came here with along with other women, they created they created their in their church spaces. They wanted to be able to um, engage within their textile crafts because they talk about that textiles crafts as a gift, and you gift it back. Mm-hmm. And this notion of using your textiles in a really kind of philanthropic or empathic way as I as I term it through my research into helping others so as a network they would actually make all these textiles and sell them and the money raised would be put back into the community okay so this notion that your textiles wasn't for this notion of commodification as in it's going to be used for you it was to help others that were worse off than you yeah so like a like a charity but there's a lot of value yeah in, in those yeah in those makes and but it was about women also exchanging knowledge yeah and this notion of exchange of knowledge but also You've got to remember that at a time when lots of these women migrated over here, getting the kind of the industry at the time, the clothing industry clothes, they, they found the clothes really dour and and not really to their liking. So having somebody that was a professional dressmaker in your community, it was this way of being able to say, oh, can you make me some clothes? So dressmakers were real sought after for making the stylish shirts for the men or make, helping to make trousers or helping to make clothes for children. So if you couldn't knit, you could crochet, you could sew. So this notion of having these all-rounded skills, not only to help support people in the community but also to support your family so for a lot of people money was tight so if you could make the clothes for your family it was another way of of valuing your space but also the notion of how do you when you arrive create a space of settlement Mm. and one of the ways that we do that is by decorating our spaces with things that make our spaces look pretty and we still do that today But for these women, it was the things that they'd done back home. So the crochet, the the kind of quilting, the kind of knitting, the kind of sewing. But they're not talked about in the same way in our literature. And I think that's that's why they don't see themselves as having any value within that crafting space. Why do you think that is? Why aren't they being talked about? I think I think it's a multitude of of um, reasons. I think one of the reasons is, and you yourself, we're, we're we're both academics in the academic space, but we are few and far between. And there's even fewer of us 
in the design space. So if you don't have academics in, in that space even starting to talk about that lived experience and talk about the fashion and the styling in that experience, you're not going to get that critical discourse. Yes, we, we talk about... We, there are people talking about black fashion, don't get me wrong, and there are people talking about textiles, don't get me wrong, but they're not people literally critiquing these other niche areas to bring it into a wider space yeah. and to show its value. Um, and I think we, when we look at books that say the history of knitting or the history of sewing or the history of crafting the people that are talking about that and the people that get referenced time and time again don't even begin to reference us as part of the story of crafting in Britain or part of the story of crafting historically. Yeah, so it's a hidden history, isn't it? Yeah. It's just not, it's not acknowledged, it's not there. So, and that's what you're aiming to do yeah. in your work. And part of it is also we're not haute couture, we're everyday. Yeah. So that every day, and it's women, and we're BME or black, whatever that contentious notion of people of colour, I mean, those, those descriptors become all, are all problematic in their own way, but they all provide a space for us to start to talk or to have those discourses. But if we're not having those discourses in the first place, we can't even begin to say, well, is it... Is it an aesthetic? Does it contribute? How does it contribute? Where is its value? Where is its heritage? Yeah. It's interesting you bring up value there, the value of crafts made by women of colour in the home and how they compare to sort of high fashion. So growing up, did you see a possible future in craft as a career or how did you... Did you realise you could make a career out of craft or did you just see it as this sort of domestic practice? I think there was I think there's three things to that. One, I saw it as a way of working in the community, because that's how I was brought up. It was this notion that your craft was a gift and you could gift it back. And I think that stayed with me, this notion of making and selling in the community or making and giving in the community. I think the second one, I always saw it as a another hobby. So making for friends, making for myself, making for my, even for my own home. But third, the thing that turned me around was that... Uh, like you in the in the seventies, we had awful careers advice. So my careers advice was, you can always be a hairdresser. Nothing that not that I have anything against hairdressers. They make us look beautiful on bad days. But that was being a, a, a one of the only black students in my in in my top stream at school. There was no inkling of being able to go to art college or anything like that. But I had, I had two fantastic teachers. I had a really brilliant art teacher and my textiles teacher, who I still remember her name, Mrs James, who just said, um, one career's evening when mum came, said, your daughter can go and do this as a career. Do you know that? But she has to go do her A-levels and then she has to go to art college. And you have to remember, if you come from a very staunch, conservative Caribbean background, going to art college was almost like going to a heathen space. So for my mum to say, my parents to say, yes, I could go to art college was a big deal. Um, 
and off I went to art college and then to uni and never looked back. But it was it was because I had great teachers that actually saw that my love of textiles and my love of art. Um, and I think one of the things that we that's happening today, the detrimental stuff that's happening to the arts in schools means that a lot of students don't get that opportunity anymore, don't get that opportunity to just engage with art and art practice and going to art spaces and enjoying arts and crafts in that way. Um, and you either enjoy it because you've got a lot of money to enjoy it, because it costs money to engage with it, or you enjoy it because you've got a fantastic art or craft, art or textiles or design teacher who sees the potential for you to engage in a subject of love. And for me, it was a teacher that said to my mum, give it a chance. Because at that time it was, I could go, I could go and be a secretary because I had to learn shorthand and typing. So I'm going back quite a few, quite a long time. Shorthand and typing, be a secretary, be a hairdresser. There's no kind of thing about moving into the arts and crafts in that space. So when they said go art college, I just grabbed it with both hands. And there were places, because coming from a Birmingham girl like yourself, there were places that you could go. So the Icon Gallery, the museum, and art library, all those places you could just wander in and, and I was in my element. Yeah, and importantly, those places are free. Yeah. Still to, to, to go into. Yeah, and I think that the important thing of, of having an arts curriculum that allows you that freedom of expression um, and allows you to, to develop your practice in, and expose you to a range of practices. But if you're not seeing people like you in those practice spaces, again... It's, you're never, you never see it as a career. And like your research has started to show, there are voices are, are at the bottom of the pile. I mean, the latest DCMS figures actually show that they don't even record craft practitioners of BME extraction because they are so tiny. Yet we have a 126% increase in students of BME extraction going into graphics, product design and fashion. So we've got these extremes happening, yet there's no um, space to have have that broader dialogue about well, what happens in these two spaces yeah. and how do we represent those students coming into those places and how do we have a curriculum that supports them. And part of my work is trying to look at that as an academic. I have to look at how I deliver into that space. Yeah, I think you've highlighted there this the phrase leaky pipeline is used a lot, but that's that's a burst pipeline, isn't it, from university to a career. Um, in terms of that, it's, from as you, you mentioned, um, you've mentioned a lot the support you've had from schools and your family, and not all students have that. They're, they're told to get a more secure job, to use air quotes, a more prestigious job maybe so in your career journey how did you get into teaching and you you in knitting now your practice is in knitting how did you get into that 
Okay, one of the things um, I went to Huddersfield, I went to Huddersfield Uni, and they had a as part of your course you had to do a year's placement. So I actually worked at three different in three different knitting spaces. So I actually went to uni thinking I was going to be a screen printer because I loved printing. That was what I was going to do. And then one day we were introduced to knitting, and I just it clicked. Something just clicked in that space, and I could literally look at yarn and I could see what it was going to be. Because um, I'd never done anything on a knitting machine. But I'd done loads of hand knitting. Um, but what was great was that this one year in industry, and that's where you learn your craft, learn the other bit of the craft. So you've got the bit in the classroom, but then this is the bit in the craft. So I worked with three in three different companies. I worked with a freelancer who worked with loads of companies around Europe. So actually designing hand knitting patterns from scratch. So going from concept to final products, um, translating patterns from Italian to French and all this kind of stuff. And even doing knitting patterns for the Japanese market. So I learned how to translate and do patterns and knit them. And my first pattern was a, was a, almost like a Thomas the Tank engine pattern. I'll never I always remember that because a couple of months after finishing my placement, I was walking down the high street and I was looking in the shop window. And there was my knitting pattern in the window. So it was this notion of, of doing that. And then I worked at Wendy Walls, which was part of Carter and Parker. And then I worked with another um, yarn company. So I understood the whole process. So this one year in industry actually set you up for understanding how the knitting industry works, how the yarn industry works, how to create from scratch, but also about sustainable practices. Because my next job, when I went back into my fourth year, before I even left, finished, I was actually offered three jobs. And the job I took was working with a local yarn company, which was part of Coates Vela. But their whole thing was about how you develop... um, yarns with cashmere with merino so and and so on so i've got this really interesting approach to working with all these different yarns from all over the place and it just it just filled me with this notion of this is where stuff comes from from around the world and this is how you engage with knitting but i think the thing that set me off was the fact that in my first year i won a, I won a yarn competition and to get that in your first year at uni gives you validation about how you work with stuff. But also it it allowed me to um, understand local yarns. I was using local, she- local yarns from local sheep in the local area. So this notion of sustainability then has mm. stayed, has been come embedded in my work. And through that, in my research, I look at how these women used local fabrics and local customs that they brought with them here from the Caribbean and how they've embedded that within their practices as well. So this notion that value and heritage also stems from where you come from and how you then bring it into into your work. So I would say to any student, getting that industrial practice is really paramount. But I also recognise that for lots of our students it's this internship model which doesn't work if it doesn't pay so we can't have students on internships and you don't pay them i was lucky we 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 the the model that we were given you had to be paid and paid a proper wage to be to do the job that you were doing for a year out in industry so i think that's still this there's still then thing about sustaining models of developing people when you want their craft in practice but not wanting to pay them. So exclusion, inclusion, 
absences and not everybody from a working class background can afford to take a year off without pay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's why the placement model is so exclusive and exclusionary, as you've as you say. So you did teacher training and eventually ended up at, at Goldsmiths where you've re- recently completed your PhD. Mm. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> so you've touched on your research there, so I'd like to have a bit more of a, a chat about that, um, your work that you've been doing mm. about textiles and its histories. Yeah. Could you expand a bit more on that? Yeah, so that actually started um, about... After I kind of finished that, um, the knitting, so the knitting side of my work, around about mid-late 80s, mass unemployment, I had to decide what I wanted to do next. So I went into teaching. Halfway through the teaching, I thought, oh, I, want to, I need to do something else. I did, a, I did an MA in textiles at St. Joseph Martins. And when I was doing that, I was looking at new technologies, CAD and CAM in knitting. But what that means to bring within that, that crafting space. But also I started to look at where did my textiles history come from? So this was in the mid 90s. So this has been brewing for quite a while. And at that time, I also started to travel around the Caribbean. So I was starting to get that seed for my research that I got now. I wanted to, I think it was about finding myself and finding me in a, in a space. And then I got offered a job at, at goldsmiths and when you move into higher education there is there are things that start to to germinate in your mind in terms of research how are you going to find your yourself in a space when you've come from a different space if you like of learning so coming from a secondary school space of learning into a higher education space of learning is two they're two different spaces and you have to kind of readjust and reformulate your thinking and your approaches um, so for me, coming into the goldsmith space meant I had to think about what do I want to do next? And it took me a good five years to think about the next steps. But every time I opened a book on design or whatever, I, I, it was this notion that I didn't see me. But I was also writing books on textiles practice, but trying to include me. Mm. So I thought, this, there's some research here. Why are we absent? Yeah. And that's when I started to look at this space. But the thing that caught my eye was this notion of social engagement. Because I'm very much about social engagement, public engagement, but also this notion of how textiles is also a very social activity. It's, yes, people do it on their own, but it, there's also a social activity with textiles, especially in groups. And at the time there was a big thing about people meeting in groups in pubs so textiles and being in pubs and being in these different spaces and connecting but what kept coming back to me was that my mum and her compatriots if you like never meet in those spaces and there are lots of other people that don't meet in those spaces because the pub for them isn't an enigma it's not a space for them Mm. and they would never meet in a pub it's just not their kind of meeting space so I wanted to explore that so I started looking at Dorcas clubs and then found through that historical link because lots of sociologists have looked at them lots of historians have looked at them but as a textiles community 
to- we totally ignored them. Right. So in talking about textile networks, I realised we... And I don't know if that's because we're, we're talking about... It's, it's, it's called a religious context to it, in that Dorcas actually comes from the Bible. Right. And it's, it's got this biblical religious context or whether it's just not something that fashion textiles people even want to consider. But I just realised that there was a, a link there. And then the further I looked at it, then I, I then found this whole migration link, the whole colonial link, the whole kind of triangle link between us, colonial migration. And then I realised there was something there in how you can take a textile network that travels from England to the Caribbean and travels back again and what happens when it mutates in that travelling so as it's it's one form here travels to the Caribbean in its in its form and then it mutates in the Caribbean there and then it travels back here and mutates again um, but I was also interested in the fact that I found that there were there are still Dorcas societies here and one that's 163 years old so if it's 163 years old, you have to say there's some, there must be something in it. It's 163 years old and still going. So what is it that we're missing in today's networks that this means that this, these groups are still going, still active, still organising, still having these face-to-face meetings? And one of the some of the key things that are coming out of this is the fact that for a lot of women, it's a, it was a gendered, it's a gendered space. And what does that mean when you just have a single gendered space? Mm. And is it okay to have a single gendered space? But it was a safe space. Are they a racialized space as well? Is it mostly women? Is it mostly women of color, or is it? N- well, that's again is the mutations. That's the mutation. So yeah. when they started here, it was all. Um, for want of a better word, white women. So high middle class women who then migrated through either church or missionaries or they were plantation owners, set up their Dorcas clubs, Dorcas societies in the Caribbean. I see. What would happen, you would then have segregated churches. So the women of colour would make up, would then set up their own spaces. Their, Dor- their Dorcas societies became Dorcas clubs. They then, when they migrate, they bring them back here. They are then excluded to some extent from some of the churches when they come here. The stories are, no, you can't come to our church because if you come to our church, our members won't come back, so you don't come back. So when they set up their own church, they have their own version of Dorcas. Yeah. So we're getting these mutations happening. But the what I didn't include in my research was this other body of research where I found there were Dorcas clubs in Canada and Australia migrated through the Lutheran um, churches from the kind of the Scandinavian countries. They set them up in China. So there are, and lots of this I found through the newspapers. So one of the things that women, whichever whichever country the Dorcas Society were situated, they used newspapers as a way of talking about what they did because newspapers were the, were the kind of, I don't know, Twitter of their day. Yeah. And it was one of the ways that the women could use that, that voice of the paper, voice of the text to say, here, this is what we've done. 
this is this is this is how much money we've raised. But also Dorcas clubs and societies were about a response to need at a, at a micro meso level. So at this bottom level, they were the response to need. So if something was happening, they could respond to it, some kind of catastrophe. So for women here in the Carib that were of Caribbean background, for instance, if there were hurricanes in the Caribbean islands, they already have connections with other Dorcas members through their church groups and they could actually make a phone call, send a letter, say, what do you need? Boom, we can respond. But it's just like the Dorcas members here. So I found a Jewish Dorcas society who, when they had the mass migration of of um, refugees from Europe to England in 1950s, they wrote letters to all the Jewish societies saying, this is what you need to put in a package. And can you send the packages to Alexander Palace because that's where they're all going to be billeted. So this notion that these women could galvanise from these local communities straight away to respond to need. That's really, that's really fascinating. So is that where you, you mentioned em- empathic activism yeah. earlier on? Is that how that feeds into it? Yeah, so I, I, call this no- I call this notion what they did, this notion of empathy, so that within this notion of cloth making, there is a notion of empathy, Um, of consideration for your fellow human being. And that comes from this notion that textiles is a gift. It's not not something to be squandered or used lightly. It has has a benefit um, that, um, as one woman put it, she said, as one of the participants in my research put it, I couldn't toil the field with my fingers, but I could... could, um, use my fingers to make cloth. So she was identified quite young that she couldn't go into the fields because in the Caribbean they still had plantations and fields. So you, you, you had to, at an early age, be able to go out into the fields to, to toil because that's how you got your food. Mm. But she was a bit weak. So what they did, they had to sew in at a really early age and that's how she put money into the house. So she, she, so she was told that she had the gift of sewing. And she used that to help make money, even in her local church. And you find that, I found that time and time again, that lots of women always talk about this notion of the gift. And Bell Hooks in um, Object of Labour talks about the fact that in a lot of um, American churches, they have this notion that you could, the notion of singing was a form of aesthetic process and practice. But actually as people began to realise that it was a form of cultural production, they then started to look at other forms of cultural production, which is the notion of sewing, baking, or whatever. And those bec- those also lead to cultural production, and they're also a form of aesthetics. Mm. And those aesthetics begin to show themselves in your spaces, whether it's through your fabrics, whether it's through your activities, whether it's through craft practices. And we get to see that now in... Um, Unlike Britain, America has a really big quilting fraternity. They have that, that practice has developed, whereas here it's still very hidden. So the crafting practices of our own women are very, very, very hidden and not it's, it's, it's not as talked about and it's not as documented and it's not as... We couldn't say... I can't say, f- for instance now, how many black women craft because none of the big 
magazines actually have those figures. They say that it's 1.5 million knitters, but they don't. There's no ethnicity related to that. They yeah. say that there's 4.5 million crafters, but there's no ethnicity. So we ethnicity related to that. So we do not know how many women actually practice this at all. Yeah. What do you think should be done to enhance the visibility of these makers and get more women of colour into these spaces? I think for a lot of them it's understanding how to access funding to even get into the spaces in the first place. I think a lot of... A lot of them are now galvanising into creating their own spaces. So you get like the Black Girls Craft Club yeah. um, or Black Girls Knit Club, which which are starting to which has developed in the last year or so. You're getting people like um, Jeanette Sloan and Lorna Hamilton Brown creating their own web space of the list of Black practitioners, yeah. for instance. Yeah, the BIPOC in yeah. Fibre community. Yeah. yeah. Um, you're getting now. Um, other groups beginning to, to kind of splinter and create their own spaces because they don't find that they can access that as an individual, but they can access spaces as a collective. And they can, as a collective, they can give voice to their work. So you're finding collectives actually happening. So if you look at Professor Sonia Boyce's programme, have you ever heard of a black artist that she did recently? which was looking at the, the stuff that's buried in archives around the UK of black artists. I think there, there is stuff buried in archives around the UK of black practitioners that are crafters, that are makers, that don't see the light of day. Um, but I think a lot of craft makers are put off because of the barriers that are put in front of them to even get into the crafting spaces. To, how, do the, how do you get an agent? How do you get... How do you get to show work in a major gallery? How do you get to? Sh- how do you actually get funding to do research? How do you get funding to have a makerspace? All of those things become quite paramount when you, if you don't have a have a space to even start your practice. So if you're a, if you're if you're a knitter and you don't and you want to use a knitting machine once you've left uni, where do you find the funds to buy? Or access a knitting machine, which can cost you a do, could cost you like two grand minimum. Mm. So how do you access all of those things if you want to continue to be an embroiderer and you want the latest and the best sewing machine? Where are you going to find three grand to get that to develop your practice once you've left uni? If you want a, a freestanding loom because you want to be a weaver. Where are you going to get the money to put, to even house the loom in the first place and then to continue your practice? But then you've got to earn money to work. So, and all of these things come into this notion of how do you develop your craft if you've got no space, no funds, no avenue, no collective space. And yes, they have all these kind of artist maker spaces, but some of them are not accessible. If you if you've got no tra- if you can't afford transport, get into them to even get into them. And some of them do have barriers and saying you've got to be there minimum three days a week. Yeah. But when you're starting up, minimum three days a week, and you've got to pay rent. Yeah. But you've got no money coming in. It becomes an impossible way to 
to survive without a bursary. There's then nobody's offering bursaries. So spaces should be more affordable and flexible, and to the needs of women in particular. Yeah, but they should also be central to the local community, not just necessarily situated in the city centre. Because mm. not everybody live. How many of us live in the city centre? What about local spaces? Or even local maker spaces, but not maker spaces that are necessarily all laser cutters and all saws and drills. Yeah. But what about maker spaces that have knitting machines, sewing machines, weaving looms? Um, the stuff that you as a, a textile crafter maker might want to actually use. And maybe there needs to be a, a, a up, up, maybe a, a rethink of some of something about a maker space. Yeah. Yeah, that's it's interesting you bring that up because a lot of maker spaces that I've I'm aware of or have visited, uh, as you describe, they have laser cutters and and f- for me, my idea of a maker is not necessarily just that. It's I find myself thinking, where are the textiles? Where's the looms? Because they're just as expensive. Um, yeah. I've often and it's also the software that that you need. Um, So at the moment, my my whole studio space is an office, is an ex office. Yeah. Um, Because I found that with the maker spaces, I couldn't. A lot of them are open plan, and so if you've got really expensive equipment, your insurance is sky high. You can't you can't leave expensive computerized equipment in an open plan space. You you get crucified with your insurance. Yeah. Um, and so for me, there were there were issues about how you then develop as a designer and how you develop your practice. So this notion of resilience and knowing your work, knowing your craft and having to network in a different way um, to facilitate your practice and to move your work on. Do you think online spaces and sort of communities such as the, the ones that you've mentioned... Yeah. Do you think they could help with with this, with getting advice, getting ideas of where funding could be obtained? I think online spaces offer a way to communicate and to host information. I think one of the things that physical spaces do, and this is what I've done in a lot of my workshops, they offer points of discussion and points of trying to understand what I need, how I need to do it, and points of connecting people in a in a in a face to face way, and sometimes you need that face to face. It's it's not just about doing everything digitally. And one of the things that I've learned from researching these women for the last several years is that something happens when you meet somebody face to face and they share you how to make. There is something intrinsically that changes you as an individual when somebody physically gives you material and you make something from that material and then you come back as a group and you see the root, you see the effort that's gone into everybody contributing to this one piece of work or several pieces of work, but you've all had a hand in making it, creating it, and then it's sold and you see the reward that comes from it. Yeah. But I don't know how... It's still there's still got to be a cost in, into how you manage that space. And whether that space, maybe it's about church spaces being more open and not locked up 
if the Dorcas group is run in a church space, maybe it's about talking to the church space about hiring that space. But then everybody kept saying, well, you have to put the equipment away. And that's the thing. You need a space where you can leave out equipment for people to come and use. You can't keep shutting. You can't keep hoiking equipment and moving it and shutting it up and then bringing it back out again. So it needs to be a permanent space that invites makers of all kinds Mm. in to be able to use it and become self-sufficient. But also it's a way of maybe bringing in a younger generation because my research, again, talks about this intergenerationality that happened with the space, with the Dorcas groups. It wasn't just about older women. It was about younger women, older women, children being involved in this creation of what I call empathic activism through cloth. Great. So you've finished your PhD. Mm -hmm. What are your plans now? (laughs) Normally I would say sleep. Yeah. (laughs) Get some rest. Um, Gosh, that's a that's a hard question, you know. You ask hard questions, Karen. Um, it, is, it is. I was asked it all the time. Still I f- don't know. <laughs> um, I think there's a lot of things that go through your mind once you finish the research because it's not the end. The PhD is just part of the journey. Yeah. Um, lots of people keep asking me when I'm going to write the book, and I think that that's going to take me a while to pull together because I need to think about what that might look like i'm still doing workshops um just finished a big one at the vna um as part of their digital design week um i do i do a lot of talks with with museums i'm doing a lot of kind of practice based still carrying on my kind of practice based approach to workshops and refining that at the moment so at the moment i'm developing things about intimate engagement with objects so how can we have intimate engagement with objects and then find their value to then rethink what heritage is. So mm. in in so in my workshops, which are about three to four hours long, I take you th- on a journey with an object and we kind of find out how you become intimate with an object and the words that actually help you to understand the meaning behind the object. And its place um, in practice, in craft, but also its personal place to you. And we do a little bit, I use weaving as a metaphor. So we will weave using fabrics that the object might have been made from. And within that process of weaving, there's a new conversation that emerges. And that new conversation that emerges allows you to rethink about the objects that you have at home that have come from other people or come from your own background or come from your own heritage and make maybe make you start to rethink about value. That's so interesting because um, I think that the value of, of crafts and certain types of craft is, uh, is really, really important to think yeah. about in terms of the crafts of women and, and women of colour. Mm. So your your focus on the object is really interesting there. Uh, love to hear more about it maybe in the future at yeah. some point. I have one final question. Okay. Do you have any role models in craft? Um, well, I met my ultimate heroine last year. Her name is Althea McNeish. And she's one of the first black designers from the RCA. Um, but she comes from Trinidad and she's an amazing woman um, and her background is printing um, and textiles but her, her 
the thing that I learned from Althea was that she she said she was never afraid to do anything and go into any space. And she took ownership of who she was and what she was. She, said she, never, she never saw that her colour was a barrier. She said it was other people's barriers. It wasn't her barrier because of her intrinsic belief in her work and that she had, she had the right to be there because she'd earned the right to be there. So for me, that, that her work is like up there. Um, in terms of the colour, the approach, the engagement, but also the work of, um, and I'm not going to spell his whole name properly, but Laduma, who runs the Maxosa label, South African designer, knitwear, brilliant kind of relationship with heritage and culture, but through knitwear. And his work is inspiring because it draws again on heritage on archives on museum pieces so he uses the original kind of museum archive as a way to research the 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 work that he does but it's also drawn from his own cultural background um so for me um that work is really kind of um focused on how you can engage in a sustainable kind of focus and then, um, I hope she doesn't mind this, but Janet Brown at the V&A, who is an advocate for kind of leading the way in kind of black um, artists and crafters and learning in that particular space, especially about the diaspora. Um, she's been an advocate there for about the last four, 15 years. And, her, and, and for me you need voices in different spaces to actually tell, help tell the story. So for me, she's one of those voices that helps tell the story. But if I just talk about another space, I'll talk about the Black Cultural Archives and places like Autograph and Innova, who are actually spaces where Black crafters and practitioners can actually go see that craft, research that craft. Places like the Stuart Hall Library... So those places where you can actually go and see those artists' work, hear, see artists live, read about opportunities. And I think it's those spaces that we really need to kind of engage with and see. But um, people like, and I'm going to name like Faith Ringgold, the American artist who was who had a recent exhibition at the Serpentine. Seeing that body of work for from the last fifty or so years was also really inspiring. So this notion that you can draw on all this body of work from all over the place that actually shows you where stuff has come from and its journey. So I think there's there are there are lots of things out there that tell us where we're going to go next but I think having role models in crafts means not only the the practitioners but the ones that are also help make the wheels turn around and I would say one that kind of nearly made me cry the other day was a a young a weaver called Rizia Wahid I hope I've spelled your name hope I've pronounced your name Papa Rizia um, and she made me kind of nearly cry because she said in 90... She, my first book in 1997 was called Skills in Textiles Technology. And Rizia contacted me recently because she said, oh, 
um, I just want to tell you, Rose, you've inspired me. And I thought, like, oh. I kind of wrote back, why? And um, this is because I was doing a talk at the William Morris Gallery on women of Walthamstow, empathy and activism. And she says, I got your book in 1998. I'm a weaver and I got your book in 1998. And I went on to teach because your book showed me that I could use weaving, my tool of weaving. 20 years on, or 10 years later, she got an MBE for the, doing arts in the community. 10 years later, she's now looking, what's my next step? So she's looking for her next step now in the crafting space. But her weavings are beautiful. Her work is astounding. She does the finest work in silk, but draws heavily on her Bangladeshi heritage. But she's now looking on her next steps after doing all this work in arts in the community. So there are people that then you don't know as a writer or as an author, you don't know how your work impacts. No. But also you don't know that what you say in a space can also make a difference. So I think your podcasts and the fact that you're bringing this research that you're doing, I think is really, really important because you're throwing up stuff that is is known but is not said. And I think the more voices that are out there that are talking about the fact that we craft, we make, and it has heritage and value is really important. Thank you. And same with your work as well. It's it's incredibly important and that's why I brought you on here today. It's been absolutely fascinating to hear about your work and the stories that, that you're telling. Where can people find out more about your work and, and follow what you're doing? At the moment, I've been one of those re I've been really slow on the uptake on 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 getting a, a web page set up. But at the moment you can follow me on um our Goldsmiths staff page, um, which I think you'll put a link on the the podcast, or do I need to say it? I, I'll put a link on the podcast. Um, but also I have a Twitter feed called at Dorcas Stories. So again, the link will be in the podcast. And I'm hoping that in this next year, I'm going to create a more kind of a better space um, online that people can see the body of work that I've now started to amass. Um because it is becoming a body of work now that kind of goes from kind of film, photography, um, actual artwork now that's starting to come out of the, the research. So hopefully in the next year or so that will all come together in a space. But as you know, it's this relationship between academia, writing and also having time to just make, be a maker and all of those things I'm juggling at the moment. Yeah, well, you're doing a great job. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. And thank you for inviting me, Karen. Thank you for listening to the Maker Stories podcast, brought to you by Birmingham City University and Crafts Council UK. This project is funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council's Innovation Fellowship Scheme. For more information about this project and for the other episodes in this series, visit craftexpertise.com. Craft Expertise.